0: Hello and welcome to the Millsurp HQ Podcast. Today we'll take a deep dive into a U.S. firearm that doesn't get the respect it deserves. We'll also hear the legendary tale of how the majority of the U.S. doughboys in World War One were carrying this quote-unquote British rifle. And we'll be joined by our special guests to talk markings, stocks, finishes, rebuilds, and all things related to our Millsurp of the show, the firearm with a hundred names, the U.S. rifle model of 1970. Hello and welcome back, all. Kelly, what's up? How you doing? I've been pretty well. How about you, Tom? I'm good. I'm excited to rock with this gun. And let's just settle this now. This gun has so many names it's ridiculous. During my research, it was the 1917, the M1917, the P17, the P-17. I'm not done. The American Enfield, the P17 Enfield, the P17 American Enfield, and so on and so on. I call it the 1917. I write it as the m nineteen seventeen that's it. What do you call it?
1: yeah, usually when I'm just describing it, I'll say like nineteen seventeen or if I'm like writing about it in a post I'll say u s model of nineteen seventeen none of that p what a p seventeen stuff or the infield nonsense it's not an infield it's it it's a different rifle
0: yeah when a p seventeen Enfield. when I see that, I'm not even sure what they're saying half the time
1: <laughs> it's like three different guns in one.
0: You know, one of the funny ones I saw on official U.S. documents was U.S. rifle, caliber 30, M1917, parentheses, Lee rifle. Lee rifle? Where
1: did that come from?
0: (laughs) So, oh, official documents. Well, for me, a lot of what I like about collecting these old guns is the history and the stories and shit behind them. And this one has a pretty interesting one, especially how we ended up using a British gun when just a few years prior, during the 1903 Springfield search, it was uh, so important to have a home-designed gun and produce gun. And so much, they, they stole a Mauser. Instead of just buying Mausers, they stole from
1: them. Yeah, they sure turned that idea around pretty quick once they got into the thick of it One and needed rifles yesterday.
0: <laughs> yeah. Our gun today is a Mauser-like action, too. So I want to get into a little of the backstory. And to do that, we have our resident historian, a very handsome and smart guy, me. We're going to send it over. Tom? <laughs> hey, thanks a lot, guys. I just wanted to share a little of this interesting backstory. I'll be quick, I promise. So, months before the start of World War I, the British were very close to adopting a new round, the 276 Enfield, and a new rifle, the Pattern 13, at the same time. Now, all I hear about this 276 Enfield round is that it was pretty hot. You know, the Brits were using new powders, new materials at this time, and doing lots of trials and tweaks, so they were working on it for years pattern 13 rifle was a nice strong action and is essentially the milsurp of the show the 1917 just in a different caliber and i did read more than once that the british were looking for a quote unquote mauser like action so gotta tip the hat to mauser again british actually had a real cool list of requirements for their new gun and cn arsenal has this video on it the p14 video you should really check that one out it has the all the characteristics and all the things they were looking for and they get most right We'll get to all that when we talk about the 1917 specs. But speaking of CN Arsenal, the Brits were moseying along with their pattern 13, tweaking it here, trialing it there, and then... war were declared. Homage. So, no way is it a good idea to try to change over to a new rifle and a new round in the middle of a war. So, there goes that. Now, I'm leaving a lot out here. Go watch that video on an Arsenal. Get the whole story. But essentially, the Brits didn't want to waste all their time and effort, and so they tried to at least get their new rifle out there. So they asked around, asked Vickers, BSA, can this be chambered in our current round? Can we use it? Rim and all. And they could. The Pattern 14 was born. Again, this rifle too is the 1917 essentially, but a different caliber. We're almost there. Now I'm going to leave a little more out here, but Vickers had some issues. They couldn't do it. This rifle could not be made in the homeland. So they hired J.P. Morgan, brokered some deals, leaving some more out. Winchester and Remington sign up. Remington was so invested in the deal that they created an entire subsidiary company, Eddie Stone, on 33 acres to make it the largest factory in the world at the time. It's pretty crazy. So I'm leaving some more out about interchangeability issues. After that got fixed, they all got rolling and were steadily producing for the Brits. Even though they weren't using them at the front lines at all, mostly these were used to free up SMLEs for the front. And just about at the end of the British contract, once again war, this time the USA. And the only problem now is we're going to have more troops than guns. And That's a pretty big problem. you are not going to wrestle the guys. You know, there's some conflicting numbers, but the general numbers of guns on hand were 600,000 1903s and 160,000 Krag rifles and a growing army, so you need more guns. They wanted to make new 1903 Springfield, but Rock Island Armory was already shut down. All the guys were retired or onto other things. Springfield had to reduce force. It would take months for them to get ready. So the U.S. looked over at Winchester and Remington, who had a bunch of machinery all brand new but still we're looking to see if they can make 1903s. That too would take too long, too much money, you have to train people, it just wasn't going to work out. So finally they said, hey, we're already set up for these P14s, why don't we just try it in 30-06? out They tried it, I'm leaving a lot out. It was good enough. Not great, good enough. And those aren't my words, those were the initial reports. Because I like the rifle. Spoiler. So Winchester, Remington, and Edison stopped making their P14s, started making these Model 1917s. But after some more interchangeability issues with Winchester and the other two, things got rolling. And especially at Eddystone, it got really rolling. Record numbers. So all three were putting out our milsup of the show, finally there. The US rifle model of 1917. Or the P-17. Or the American Enfield. The Lee rifle. Whatever you call it. That wasn't bad, right? Alright, back to you guys. Alright, thank no. you, Tom. Appreciated that. Kelly, I wanted to ask you, during your research, were you getting the picture we were very lucky that Winchester, Remington, and Eddystone were all geared up already to make these guns?
1: Yeah, this was pretty much just a stroke of luck on our part. If we weren't making these for the British, we might have ended up going over there with Mosins or something that we were making for the Russians.
0: And I heard the British owned all the the machinery and sold it to us at such a drastic discount. They were desperate themselves.
1: Yeah, they were ready to move on from that. They already had built up their smle stock so they were done with the p14 for the most part so it was perfect timing yeah
0: even though these guns don't get the respect they deserve these guns came in in a pinch and worked out well and um we haven't even talked any firearm specifics yet so let's get into some specs some info on how these firearms were when they left the factory so we can start identifying some originals some rebuilds talk some market prices all that goodness
1: Yeah, so I got my spec sheet pulled up here. Oh, yeah. Kind of give a quick comparison versus some other rifles of the era, like the 1903 or the Gewehr 98 that it was facing off against over there in the western front. So for the 1917, they come in at a decent length of around 46.3 inches. And with that big old bayonet on there, you you get up to 62.3 inches. Oh, wow. Over five feet tall. Oh, my God. And that is, that's is—that's only with a 26-inch barrel. But that, that barrel, even though it's not quite as long as some other ones, it's a very thick, heavy barrel. So they, these were renowned for their accuracy. But due to that thick, heavy barrel, they come in at a hefty 9.2 pounds, which is higher than most rifles of the day that I was facing off against or on the same front with. So that's where a lot of Gosh. the complaints that – GI's were having came from because man if you're lugging this thing around all day you're not going to be too happy about it and then throw a bayonet on there and you're out you're over 10 pounds
0: it was definitely a workout carrying that.
1: yeah i've carried carried mine around a few times with bayonet on and you start feeling it after 10 15 minutes oh man you don't want to carry it around anymore after that and with that we also have a sight radius of 31.8 31.8 inches, which is excellent for the day. I mean, they got the sights all the way there on the very rear, the rear of the receiver and all the way at the tip-top of the barrel. And those also come with those big old hefty sight protectors as well, so no damage in those or mistaking them for anything else. The trigger is a nice two-stage pull with a th- roughly three to four-pound break, so this is an excellent trigger for a military rifle, and it's one of my favorite triggers I've, I have Me on my mind. It's got that pretty cool like groove on the trigger there so you get a good grip on there it feels nice speaking of grooves so it has a five groove left hand twist rifled barrel which i think we touched on that some of them actually have a right hand twist just depending on which company made the barrel
0: now i prefer a left no i'm just kidding i have no <laughs> there's no preference on the left or right hand twist
1: <laughs> well, it depends if i'm uh above or below the equator you know <laughs> And then for the sights, we have our nice graduated rear sight that goes from 200 to 1,600 yards, not meters. And it has a 400-yard battle sight, which I actually thought was 300 when I first got it. And moving on down the rifle, we it is in, chambered in the 30 odd 6 caliber. Thank you, United States. Holding six rounds, not five, even though they came on five-round triple clips, thanks to the changeover from that RIM-303 British round in the P-14. And, of course, it is a cock-on-close Mauser action. It's not anything but a Mauser. It's not an infield. It is a cock-on-close Mauser. Beautiful. And nice. the stocks actually came in in three different lengths, tall, medium, and short. And that was one question we kind of had is, what was the normal for that? We're not We're not sure about that one of why they came in different lengths or how many came in what or from where.
0: All three sizes in all three manufacturers. So who the heck knows?
1: Yeah. Then, for the stock they had in, originally they had a linseed oil finish, as most U.S. stocks did, but I think later later on after the war, they changed that, maybe with the rebuilds. So I know they weren't really messing with it too much during the wartime. They just want to crank these things out.
0: U.S. rifle stocks are beautiful.
1: Oh, yeah. Nice walnut stocks. We've always gotten that thing right for sure. As for markings, so we're a ton, ton of markings when they first came out of the factory. They had a lot of the inspection of Sam's worth, the eagle over the number i'm not quite sure which numbers or which i think they were for like the different manufacturers or something like that but an eagle is just an inspection stamp kind of like the german waffen i think i guess that was all that and then they would have a u.s flaming bomb stamped on the receiver as the official acceptance stamp and on the bolt because those were the load bearing parts if i recall oh as well as the barrel of course
0: these eagles are not even like the good eagles these are like these skinny hard to make out especially if a stock's been sanded, stocks been sanded down you know
1: yeah like any reefer you almost never see the eagle because they disappeared pretty quickly and it kind of the eagle kind of reminds me of like the usps eagle i think it's just like the eagle head over the number or something like that right a little squished yep so if your stock has them you know those are original markings and your stock has not been messed with much at all and then Oh, speaking of the barrel, of course, it'll have the date that the barrel the barrel was made on it, which may or may not coordinate to the, to the gun. We'll talk about that later. And then, of course, you'll have the serial number on the receiver itself, and only on the receiver itself. So, if you ever see someone that says, all matching on a 1917, or really any U.S. rifle, you know they either don't really know what they're talking about, or they know exactly what they're talking about, because they know how to look for all the little pieces and parts everywhere kind of like german stuff well german stuff they serialize everything it's
0: it's very frustrating you you know what type of part was on there that's i guess the best you can do
1: yeah another thing they did was every manufacturer stamped their the first letter of their name on there so like a a w for winchester or an r for remington they stamped that on each and every little part except for the really small parts like screws and stuff like that but if you look at these you'll see a little e here and there a w here and r there and if you have a rifle that has all of the same letter, you know maybe that's all from the same factory and all original. So there's a there's one hint you can kind of use to when you're looking at these is try and match up all the letters. And there's some hidden ones too. We'll talk about that later as well.
0: Yeah, that, that's fun because there's a lot of those little letters all, all over the
1: rifle. Oh yeah, there's at least a dozen of them that you got to find. Probably more than that actually. Right, even the ones inside. Yeah. Alright, so I think that just about covers most of the specs, and if we're, I mean, it's kind of hard to picture in your head, but if you want to compare it to some rifles of the day, maybe something that you have yourself, we can compare it to, for example, the 1903 that I was directly competing with, and that came in at 8.7 pounds, which is half, a full half pound lighter, or which is a pretty significant amount with something that you're holding out, like full, fully stretched out with your arms or walking around with all day. The 1903 was only 43.2 inches in length, as compared to our 46.3, so three full inches shorter, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, unless you're talking to my girlfriend. That's
0: (laughs) That's a lot, though.
1: But, if if you put them right next to each other, you'll see there's a pretty significant difference, just moving them around, swinging them around, holding them up, and everything.
0: You know, when I pick up the Garand, I think it's a, a long, heavy rifle, and it's Barely heavier, and it's a lot shorter than the nineteen seventy.
1: Oh yeah, it makes up quite a difference. And then of course, nineteen oh three had a twenty four inch barrel, so there's where those two of those inches difference came from. But you'll never know the difference between a twenty six and twenty four inch for accuracies; they were plenty accurate. They did have rear tangent sights, which at the time U.S. troops were trained with and were used to, and they had that windage adjustable rear sight, which they definitely liked whereas the 1917 did not. And we go to the other the side of the cock on trench. close
0: and the cock on open was a big thing, I heard, with some of these oh. doughboys.
1: Yeah, that's right. It was based on a Mauser 98 action for the 1903, so they're more used to that. And same with the crag. It was it was not based on a Mauser 98, but it was a cock on open, so it's a little different feeling when going to the cock on close of the 1917. And hopping over to the other side of the trench, we'll compare it to the Gewehr 98 which comes in at a pretty hefty 9 pounds, which is still lighter than the 1917, just by a little bit. Crazy. But that one is 49.2 inches with a 29.1-inch barrel, so a little bit longer than the 1917, a good 3 inches longer. So noticeable there, but, I mean, if you see a Gewehr 98, you immediately think, well, like, wow, that's a long rifle. But seeing the 1917, they're kind of deceiving because you don't think they're that long, but they really are that long. And the
0: 1917s were more accurate than the Gewehr 98s, so they th- didn't even need all that extra barrel.
1: Yeah, they really should have made a carbine version. Oh, that would
0: be the perfect rifle range. right That It was the the 8mm Mauser limitation, I think. That sucks. Couldn't tweak it enough.
1: Yeah, they had some spicy stuff back then. That's They were Breaking beating shelters. up the soldiers. <laughs> it's, not, it's not an M95, though. <laughs> no. Yeah, they had some intense muzzle flash, and were scorching the bayonets and all that fun stuff.
0: So basically, it was a heavier rifle and on the long side, but pretty much fit with the contemporaries.
1: Yeah, it was nothing out of the ordinary,
0: for sure. Just that the Doughboys had to go from a you know the cock on open to the cock on close on a whole different sight. So.
1: It was longer and heavier, so they weren't, weren't quite ready for that, it seemed like. All right, so now that we know the
0: specs and all the details and all that, I think it's a good time to bring on our guest. Now to talk about some rebuilds, some markings, finishes, market trends, commons, rares, everything 1917 you'll ever encounter, we have a special guest today, a buddy of ours who's been studying the 1917 for years and is our 1917 loving pal, Zeb. What's up? Hey, guys. How's it going? Thanks for having me on. Well, welcome. First off, I'd like to know what you call this gun. We said what we called it.
2: What do you call it? I call it the M1917, just to keep it simple. Technically, it's the U.S. model of 1917.
1: Yeah, I think that's a pretty universally accepted one. At least it's not P17. I've heard that
2: one. Oh, yeah, that one drives
0: me nuts. (laughs) So so you're not an American Enfield kind of guy.
2: It's designed by Winchester (laughs) under specs given by Enfield. So it's an American gun. Yeah, so I'm
0: 1917, I will write it as M1917,
2: which is a little what you yes, said. Yes, that's technically still correct, because in the records, it's listed as M1917.
1: Okay. Sounds like there's a few correct ways. I also just like, yeah,
2: 1917,
0: right? Well, you know, a, a few of the official documents had 1917, parentheses, Lee rifle.
2: So, <laughs> I don't <laughs> know if I've seen that, but I've definitely seen <laughs> Enfield before. Yeah. It wasn't a uh, exceptionally welcomed rifle at the time. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the troops didn't like
0: them right away. So we've been talking about these rifles, how they came out of the factory and got us up to speed. Now we want to know a little more about the updates, rebuilds, and what happened to these guns after they left the factory. First of all, how many were made total? 2.2 uh,
2: 2 million, roughly. So that's a lot when you think about it. It is a lot. It's a lot more than the 1903s we had at the time. Yeah, and that was only in two years. Uh, Eddie Stone had the largest rifle plant in the world. You know, and, and it's sad that after
0: the war, it just dissolved into the locomotive factory. That
2: yes, originally it. it was a locomotive factory. They expanded to make rifles, and then expanded it again.
0: And then Winchester made the least, but they started it off, I think, first. Which yes, there's a some story problems. about that. <laughs>
2: Yes, they started before the drawings actually were standardized between that's the manufacturers. Nice. So they had to like rebarrel a lot of guns, remake a lot of parts, and a lot of the early guns are even stamped with a star.
0: And I heard they screwed up with the P14s with the same exact issue. That
2: so, would uh... not shock me. I'm not 100% <laughs> on the P14s.
1: Yeah, that's right. They, cuz they marked them or they designated them as like Yeah, same rifle, situation. Rifle Pattern nineteen fourteen, and they put like a parentheses W or parentheses R or parentheses E right. for the different manufacturers.
2: And it's actually very interesting that Eddystone Stone and Remington literally said they have to wait until they get the exact specs, and it turned out to work for them. So
1: I don't know why we would start before you have the specs. and just guess.
0: Very arrogant, this Winchester Corporation. It's
2: funny because they made the le- the least,
1: and they have the. That perception of quality that the troops seem to like. They're like, oh, my dad has a Winchester rifle. I like the Winchesters better. That in, my cool. opinion,
2: in my opinion, the Winchesters are the worst made rifles out of the manufacturers.
1: Wow. It's the opposite. Wow. So
0: Eddie made more than the other two combined, I believe.
2: Correct. Almost double of Remington.
0: So being that you're saying Winchester's a, a inferior product that's so most of the 1970s you're going to get are going to be pretty good then.
2: Yeah, I mean they would only actually send Eddie Stones and Remingtons overseas because they were more interchangeable because they're from the same parent company basically so they used the same drawings and so they made it very easy, right?
0: They, they marked them all W, R, and E right. a, almost every part but no serial, which is annoying. You don't know if it's the original part
2: Yes, that's an American thing. American guns are never serialized, really. And so we talked about the
0: stock markings had the eagle. So every other stock marking, is that not
2: from the war? So there are only a handful of markings that stocks actually got during the war. It was an inspector mark that's thought to be the final proof of the rifle. It's in forward of the mag magazine right forward of the magazine, if you look on a the 1917, there will be a proof, and then right pull bottom of the magazine, there will be another proof. And that's it? Yep, for the stock. And that's all they would have had. And well, there's an R, too. Some of them would have an R, E, or a W on the front part of it, too, to designate makers.
1: Yeah. I'm looking at mine right now. It has an R and an N. I don't know what the name But not all of them did that. Well, we'll talk a little about post-war use. Probably
0: a lot of those marks came from some sort of post-war use or Lend-lease. Yes. There is a lot of post war use. Post World War I, we'll clarify. So yeah. the majority of the 1917s I see for sale have these GKMs and all all these different markings. So that's something that I guess they didn't have much time during the war to take them in, arsenal them. So that's all post war.
2: Yes. So those are World War II rebuild marks or inspection marks. Some of them just got stamped even though they weren't rebuilt. And Kelly, what was your barrel?
1: Yeah, so mine is – it's a Remington, and it's glued, and it has like the – it has an RAP on the side of the stock. So it got inspected, but they didn't redo anything, It's but it's an 818 barrel.
2: Right, yeah. A lot of them they just inspected because they were stored bad in between the war, and a lot of barrels needed to be replaced.
1: Yeah, barrel's pretty nice on it, so I guess this one blocked out and was in okay shape.
2: Yeah, there's a – and you might even – they might even have replaced the barrel – because they made a lot of extra barrels at the end of the war. So you'll see a lot of early rifles with 1919 dated barrels. Hmm, That's cool. And did they put those on during,
0: I know that after the war, they made a decision, 1903 or 1917, they chose the 1903. Yes, they did. They put the 17s away, and I heard they did some stuff to them, so...
2: So, immediately post World War I, some of them got rebuilt. You know, if the gun blew up, got blown up with a guy or something, they would fix it. But there wasn't like a World War II style rebuild program for them.
0: But the Parkerizing stuff, we were talking before about how
2: ugly that is, but how efficient it is. But, yes. So, was that wartime? It is very late wartime. They started producing Parkerized parts, and it's not the normal Parkerized you'll see. It's more of a dark black Parkerizing.
1: Yeah, I heard that it was like they had the receivers all and everything all polished and nice, like they did for the bluing. But then they yes. switched to doing the, the Parkerizing, it, so it looks they different.
2: Did not bead blast them.
1: Yeah, that's that's why they the gray looking ones.
2: So that's another way to tell a refurb versus original finish. If it's been bead blasted, they probably refinished it.
0: And did they mark anything on the bolt ever again after the original markings?
2: Okay, yeah. So there's three parts originally that would have been stamped when they proofed the gun. The bolt handle, there's a flaming bomb on it, the receiver, and then the barrel. And those were the load-bearing parts, so they proofed them. But then post-war, they did make extra bolts in World War II that were stamped USMC, I believe. But they were not... Because of the Marine Corps, it was because of the manufacturer's name was USMC.
1: Oh, I bet that throws people off.
2: Jeez. Yeah, they were, for a long time, a lot of people thought they were Marine Corps guns. So they all had the flaming bomb, though, on the rail. Yes, the receiver, the, right, the... barrel, right, right right, over the chamber there's one, if you take off a handguard on one, and then on the bolt handle.
0: Sadly, I've seen a lot that were worn so down, you can't even tell it was a flaming bomb there.
2: Yeah. Some of them weren't stamped the greatest either, to be honest. You know, wartime, trying to just throw them all out, so.
1: Yeah, you hardly ever see the eagles on the refurb stocks, too.
2: Yeah, they sanded a lot of them.
1: My poor
0: one is, is, you can't even tell, it looks like a little rectangle.
2: So, yeah, there's a couple of markings that can tell you if your stock is Remington, Eddystone, or Winchester, not only from the Eddystone, Winchester, Remington mark that you'll sometimes find on them. Like, certain expector marks only came from certain plants.
1: That's right. I think I read it was like, so it's like the Remington was like the number 300s and Eddie Stone's a 200 or something like that.
2: Yeah. So zero. Let me look at my notes here. It's zero to 200 is Eddie Stone. So anything zero to 200 is Eddie Stone. 200 to 400 is Remington and 400 to 600 is Winchester.
0: I got to write that down because that's very helpful yeah right when you're looking at the photos you go through you see the mark i don't know what 302 means on the one we were looking at before
2: yeah that's why i was telling you it was a remington (laughs) gun even though i didn't see
0: the receiver all right that's good to know
2: so yeah there's i would highly recommend the book model of 1917 by c.s ferris too there's a lot of um those numbers in the book too for certain parts that it tells you i did see that book
0: and there's not many 1917 books out there there is
2: not. I think there's only, like, two or three.
0: Compared to the 1903 books and grand books.
2: Oh, geez, yeah. Right. <laughs> that's but underappreciated. Yeah, can, but, like, on the ma- trigger guard on these, the usually the maker's mark is underneath. So if you wanted to look at the maker mark, you would have to pull the trigger guard out. Or you can just look at the eagle stamp.
0: Oh, underneath the trigger guard. Oh, right. that's
2: great. But they put an eagle stamp on the outside of the trigger guard, so you can just look at that. And then if it's within what range and it'll tell you what, who made it. So if you're at a gun show, you all you got to do is look at the trigger guard and it'll tell you. Wow. Interesting. It's it, you know, like the German guns
0: where they had the screws serialized. It's, it's frustrating that you have to do these little tricks.
2: Yeah. But I mean, it makes sense if you want a gun to be interchangeable, why would you need to serialize anything?
1: Yep.
0: Well, should have told Winchester early on all that.
1: <laughs> all of the specs, wait for the specs. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's actually another funny point is Winchester started in, I think it's June. You'll see June barrels, June of 1917 barrels, but they're very rare because they manufactured them to the wrong tolerances. Jeez. And then they later on got replaced. Yeah, so it's very hard to find a 617 dated Winchester barrel. Usually all you see is 817 Winchester barrels.
1: Alright, so you do you probably do a lot of looking at nineteen seventeens. If you if you if somebody came to you and said, Hey, I saw a nineteen seventeen for sale, what would like be the first thing you pictured in your head? Are you thinking like a refurb one, a blued one? Immediately
2: which... I think a parkerized gun. You know, immediately a parkerized gun with a rebuild stamp. Eddie Re- Stone rebuild cartouche. Yeah, probably an Eddie Stone in like the one million eight hundred thousand range, those seem to be common for some reason. Pretty specific. Yeah, I don't know why. That's just what I see for some reason. I do a lot of looking for 1917s to find blue ones. So, and How much are those? If you found an original, every single part, you know, is Remington. If you had a Remington rifle, I would say it's twice the price of a typical refurb, at least.
1: Wow. A lot of a lot of little things. I mean, up. I've
2: found one or two in the last year. So a one million
0: eight hundred thousand Eddie Stone. If I said it was seven fifty, um,
2: that's a good deal in my opinion. That's if a good it has deal. A good right? bore, I would say that's a very good deal. I would say the typical going rate is probably about a thousand dollars for a refurb. Yeah, well, they've
1: climbed quite a bit.
2: If you have a blued gun that's a refurb still, you might get to twelve hundred. I mean, it just depends. So, is there a cheap Remington or a
0: cheap Winchester? I guess like the latest ones. Because I know the early Winchesters are with the W mark. The early ones have a different receiver marking. Correct. Those are expensive.
2: Those those are about a 25% increase. Oof. Yeah, they're not cheap. I mean, there's only about, I think they only did it to 5,000 roughly. So there's a lot of post-war guns too because they didn't want to immediately just shut down production because it's an armistice, not a surrender, you know.
0: Right, so they went into 1919 for
2: a lot. Yeah, very early 1919.
0: All right, so let's say the uncommon ones then, probably like what I just said, some of these Winchesters. Are, are there uncommon Eddy Stones or are all Eddy Stones pretty much? Like is an early Eddy Stone desirable or is it just Eddy Stones?
2: I'm sure earlier the rifle, the more desirable. I personally try and collect earlier rifles just because they'd have a higher chance of being sent overseas than like an August rifle, you know, August 1918 rifle, clarify
1: yeah, if anything, it was just on the the boat over there and didn't make it.
2: Yeah, or it just sat in a
0: depot. Can you find these wartime used that didn't go through the rebuilding and reparkerizing and all that? Like, like how hard is that to find? Is that
2: uncommon or is that rare now? Oh, it's very hard to find, like, a not-refurbed rifle. Uh, Big premium, tooth on them.
0: So I wonder... Like I've seen multiple refurb. I wonder if now because there's so many refurb nineteen seventy if like just one refurb is a more desirable than two. <laughs> yeah,
1: maybe if it only did the got the World War One refurb and not World War Two or something well, like that. Well,
2: I mean some refurbs are blued still, but they're still refurbs, but in my opinion that would be more desirable.
1: So did they change
0: what they blued during the the refurbs?
2: Um, they just didn't find a need to refinish it. I mean, they had so many different places rebuilding these, there's not, like, one set rule for they always parked this, and they always blued this. They never re-blued anything. They always would park it.
0: Oh, that was it, yeah. Okay,
2: they wouldn't so re anything. If if they needed to refinish something, they would parkerize it.
1: Okay, so any blued part is original Yes.
2: Cool. The only parts that were never blued are the firing pin and the cocking piece. And the... A 1917 barrel year versus
0: 1918. Is there a price? It's,
2: it's very hard to find a 1917 barrel date that's earlier than December. So November, December, they're kind of common 1917 barrel dates. But once you get to October and earlier than that, they're hard to find.
0: See, I like that. Like that's that's a nice uncommon one to target. Like a 1917, nice early one.
2: Yes, I have a rifle right here. This is a 1017 dated Eddie Stone barrel. And it is serial number 69,000 and change.
0: All right. So how much is that worth these days? Um, 1,000, eh?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, this one has very little finish left, but it is a blued rifle, and it has not been rebuilt. I would say north of 12th. Nice. Probably nice. more than that if you put it at an auction, to be honest.
0: Since the pandemic, all these U.S. rifles have really jumped. Oh, yeah. yes. Yes, they have.
1: I think you know, 1917s are finally being appreciated a little bit more. They always kind of been on the back burner for well, ever since World War 1. I.
0: I was wondering is there a spot they crack? Is there a headspace issue? Are there any issues with these guns? You yes, know, there
2: are. Uh-oh. They're very good guns for the most part, but there's a couple issues with them that were noticed. Number one issue, the ejectors. They break constantly. Why is that though? Just it's it's poor, thin? Do you have a picture of one, but if you have a picture one, that's all you need to see. Um, it's basically just a super tiny spring that has to eject the cartridge, and it's very common for them to break. I shouldn't say they constantly break, but that is the most breakable part on the 1917. And the field armor kit would have, like, 40 of those, I think.
1: So <laughs> That sucks. Yeah, man. looking at mine, it is a little thin piece of metal, isn't it?
2: Yeah, let me see. I actually got one a broken one in one of my auction guns. Mm. I was not happy about that and that brings me to the other thing if you ever want to rebarrel one of these it is very hard uh-oh why they they like to eddystone in particular the receivers sometimes crack when you rebarrel them
1: oh i've heard about that
2: and it's only Eddie Stones for some reason hmm. and you do not notice it with a parkerize on it but if it was blued you would notice a crack wow and the barrels are very hard to get off and a lot of the time you'll end up having to cut relief cuts in the barrel to take it off well That sounds bad. So, yeah, they're...
0: Because these were turned into hunting rifles. They must have just left the same barrel on there.
2: Yeah, they would just cut them down a lot of the time, cut them to, like, 18 inches, 20 inches, and rear their rear sights off, which ruins the value 100% because you can't put new metal on.
1: I guess it's a good thing they like 30 odd six.
2: (laughs) I think they're very nice, though. If you get a well-done sporter, it's a good deer gun.
1: Yeah, I've heard a lot of these receivers were were reused as, like... 300 wind mag or 458 yes. lot or whatever elephant rifles
2: winchester made nickel steel bolts too so if you ever see like a magnum conversion a lot of the time they'll use a nickel steel winchester bolt
1: okay
2: now uh, import marks common because they didn't get shipped back much so yes they can be common a lot of the danish rifles have import marks from vermont i believe um I can't remember if a lot of the British or Canadian ones have import marks or if they imported them before they needed to be import marked, but I'm sure there's a lot of them out there that are import marked.
0: I wonder if that's a good indication of where they were post-war versus being sold through the DCM or CMP.
2: Usually it's pretty easy with 1917s because the British put broad arrow stamps on everything. Yeah, they got it.
0: They got the idea of marking the guns, how nice that is. Yep.
2: yep. Sometimes <laughs> you'll see a bayonet that was originally a P-14 bayonet. The U.S. took it over and stamped U.S. markings on it. And then the British stamped markings on it again. It's
1: been all over the
2: place. Yeah, those are kind of cool.
0: So I I guess that brings us to the rares because I would guess the rare ones of these are the U.K., Denmark, Philippines, all these other ones.
2: Um, There's actually a lot of the U.K. rifles in America right now. And Danish ones are a little bit harder to find, but I wouldn't call them rare and the UK
0: ones are just 1917s that they used. Is
2: right. That... They would just use them as a home guard rifle in World War II to free up Lee Enfields for frontline service.
1: And those have like the red stripe painted on the... Right. They'll have a there. red
2: band and an out 6 painted on the front of them. Did the Canadians
1: do that too for their training rifles? I
2: believe so. I'm getting a little foggy on that. It's been a while since I read about that. But yeah, I believe they put red bands on the Canadian rifles as well
0: and i like the story of we sent more than 700,000 from what i read to england after uh, dunkirk
2: which yeah, it is was crazy. very helpful cuz then they could use the home guard rifles that probably were Lee-Enfield's smle's give them them to the combat troops and then the combat or the combat troops would have better rifles and then the home guard would get the 1917s so what would be like the grail 1917 if someone was looking for personally years Personally, I would like a first-month production rifle that's all original from each manufacturer. That would be pretty sweet. I, that's they that's have... like my holy grail, is like a first-month rifle.
1: I know I've seen like a couple pictures or heard like in the writings that they use them as sniper rifles. Have you ever seen any of those? I don't think I've ever seen one.
2: Um, I've not heard about 1917 sniper rifles, but I have seen a lot of P-14 sniper rifles.
1: Maybe that's what I'm thinking of
2: because the P14 is a very accurate rifle. Same with the 1917. I mean, they're if you haven't shot one, you need to shoot one. They're great shooting guns.
1: Oh, yeah. I love taking mine to the range. It's, I it's, can do it. hundred.
2: Oh, yeah. They're great guns. It's actually ridiculous how accurate they are. And solid. Yeah. I mean, I would be surprised if you could blow one of these up, even with a pretty hot load of out 6
0: so That's good. You don't have to worry too much. It's good gas mitigation strong.
2: Yes, it does. Mauser Action. I mean, Mauser, Action. Mauser Action, that's giant. It's just big a old, giant hunk of steel. Big old extractor on the side. Funny enough, those actually broke. Hmm. Wonder how they... How do they that was start? one <laughs> of the other things that was a problem. Like, oh, it from, is it? So the ejector, extractor, and then the rebarreling can be tough on them, but those are mainly the three things that are a pain with them.
1: Yeah. I guess it is a little bit smaller than your ninety eight extractor. I
2: think it had something to do with tempering, but I'm not a hundred percent on that. Interesting.
0: I'm not using mine enough to snap it. So.
2: No, I haven't heard of one snapping I'm recently. I'm assuming in World War One there was a lot harder conditions than us going to the range on a Friday afternoon.
1: Yeah. <laughs> more a little more mud in there. Spicier ammo or inconsistent ammo.
2: Speaking of mud, uh, they actually made a mud cover for these. Really? Oh, it was just it was just a canvas canvas cover that Did just you like, bolt or snapped on it.
1: Oh, so you can like shoot with it on? It wasn't. No, no, no it was more of
2: a transfer transport thing. Um,
1: okay, I've seen the like the. But I have seen those in use
2: in France. Hmm. Wartime.
1: Awesome. Look at pictures of that
0: because I've seen the like the S M L E ones. And so basically if you find one for under a thousand and the bore is good, it's probably and a good deal.
2: The nice thing is a lot of the bores are very good on these because they got rebarreled a lot of them and they all have the year of
0: rebarrel on them still right even the world war ii ones incorrect the world Uh war ii
2: barrels the world war ii barrels are just stamped the maker mark but those aren't no the only makers were Winchester,
0: remington or anyone
2: right but then they had in world war ii they had subcontractors that made barrels because eddie stone isn't in business anymore remington's making 1903s and winchester's making carbines and m1 rifles
1: It wasn't like, uh, I know it was High Standard and one other company. So
2: High Standard and Johnson Automatics. That's right. Hey, that's spoiling one of my trivia
0: questions. You know what? Time for some trivia. Okay. All right, here we go. First question. During the war, a number of model 1917 rifles were fitted with a French-designed Vivienne Besserie attachment, which proved to be handy devices for trench warfare, and were for this purpose. So what did the French throw
2: oh, on our easy. guns? Oh, they put grenade launchers.
0: Correct.
2: Yes, so there's actually a couple models of grenade launchers that were used on these. You could buy them? They're very rare. The World War One models are very rare. I saw Ian's Forgotten Weapons video on it. Yes, he has a very good video on them. I think his is one of the later patterns, because originally it was basically the French design with the two prongs. And then later we did like a screw-on spigot kind of type thing. So if you see one of these for sale, buy it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, there are reproductions,
0: so you got to watch out for that. All right, second question. Winchester manufactured a short supply of magazine platform depressors, which when inserted into the magazine to press the follower to allow the bolt to close on empty and cycle as normal for the inspection arms maneuver and to facilitate rapid-fire practice. But rumors had it that soldiers that were not issued these would often improvise and insert one of these items to get
2: the same effect. Personally, I'd just take it out.
1: They put in a stripper clip because it's a five-round clip in a six-round yeah, magazine? Yeah,
2: i was trying to think how you could block the follower from coming up.
0: This was a GI trick that was in a uh, couple of their diaries, they inserted a coin, a penny
1: over the follower.
0: And this allowed them to ride the bolt over, open and close it for the when they were inspecting arms. Alright, here's the third one. Yeti Stone Rifle Plant's monthly production at one point exceeded 100,000 rifles with daily production averaging 5,000 with a high of 7,800 in one day in 1918. And so a plant this large employed a lot of workers and reached a high of this many workers. I'll give you multiple choice. 1,000, 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, or 25,000. I'm going
1: to go with 15. Kel? go with
0: 10,000. The answer is D, 15. Thanks. They had 15,000
2: and. 400 and change it's a lot of people i think i read it was 35 acres the entire plant yeah it It was was big it was the biggest rifle plant in the world i mean they produced a lot of rifles there quickly
0: fourth question okay this is what we were talking about before model 1917s that were taken out of cosmoline and refurbished during world war ii often needed a new barrel and instead of copying the original british style left hand twist. They went with a conventional right-hand twist using a Johnson Automatics two groove, or a four groove made by this company, who made the majority of the replacements this time. So, who was the uh, other company?
2: Well, there's um, only one other one to choose from that actually manufactured a lot. Yeah, which would be high standard.
0: That's it. So yeah, Johnson Automatics is the same Johnson, the Johnson uh, semi-automatic. I think that? Yeah, it's
1: it, the same one.
2: Yeah. That would make sense because they just got done with the Johnson rifles and need something to do. All right, we got one more.
0: Final question. Winchester's excellent formula for making strong model of 1917 receivers was studied, liked, and then used by Rock Island Armory and eventually by Springfield when both started using Winchester's preferred type of metal. We mentioned earlier
2: this <laughs> metal on their own receivers. I'm assuming Kelly has it too. You got it? I have it, but does Kelly have it? Go for it. Uh, nickel steel. That's it. Yeah. It's Winchester nickel steel bolts. They used them a lot in Magnum conversions, like I said earlier. All
0: right, that's did for trivia. Nice job, guys. I was reading that they were trying to improve the 1903 sights because of how good the 1917 sights were. But then the Garan came along and they scrapped all that.
1: I guess they came up with the O3A3 later
2: on. Yeah, those are pretty right. good sights, too. I like the 1917 sights. They're my favorite rifle sights on a Milserp rifle ever. Oh, oh, yeah, I love them, too. There's the long sight radius, the front sight blade's perfect size. It's maybe a little small, but... It's it's well-protected, the front ears and the rear ears. Oh, yeah, like you ain't whole... knocking the sights out of, out of whack. Yeah, they
1: weren't messing around like a quarter inch of steel protecting the rears. Funny thing is, originally
2: the manufacturers wanted to zero it at 200 yards, but the U.S. government told them, nope, it's got to be 400. 400. 400? Yeah, it's 400. That's why I'm missing. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you got to aim low. But, I mean, the rule of thumb was just aim at the belt line. You'll hit them somewhere.
0: Right. Oh, we mentioned the bayonet earlier. It was just the
1: one, right?
2: Um. Yeah, the one style of bayonet. It's patterned off the P-14 bayonet. Essentially, they used some P-14 bayonets, too, early on.
1: Yeah, I've seen the restamped ones.
2: Yeah, those are very early ones. And then the U.S. originally made bayonets. Remington is the only company that Remington and Winchester are only companies that made bayonets during the
1: oh during the during the
2: war. Yeah, post war, there's a lot of people who made 1917
1: bayonets. And how can you tell those apart? Just the date on them.
2: Well, they're not made by Remington or Winchester, and then they'll have plastic grips too. Oh, that's right. And they'll be parkerized, but not all World War One. Bayonets are blued just because they've been rebuilt.
1: And then, like, the super early ones didn't have a clearing hole, I think. Correct.
2: I have one of those. Pretty proud of it. There was only one month they didn't put clearing holes in the bayonets. 19- oh, that's, that's
1: right. Mine the early. Models. September
2: 1917. You mean, like, the, um, the drain hole for the... Yeah, there's, like, a clearing hole... Right by the button on the bayonet, and on the British ones you won't see it, and on the early American ones you will not see it. But the war or the later production ones, anything other than September nineteen seventeen, you will see it.
0: And this, it's the ninth. What's the name of the bayonet exactly? The ninth,
2: um, M nineteen seventeen bayonet, and the trench rifle, uh trench shotgun. Yes, the eighteen ninety seven trench same. gun uses it. So, so that's another reason why competing. they produced a lot of bayonets post war or World War two because the trench guns still use them. But why is it so expensive still? The bayonets?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: I have no clue. <laughs> they're really anything... well made, though. I mean, if you have one in your hand, they're very well made.
1: Yeah, anything U.S. is pricey these
2: days. I love the two-tone blue, and I think it's parkerized on the top part, but the early ones are two-tone.
0: But And no, no serial numbers on anything, right?
2: Nope. No serial numbers, just a U.S. mark, and it'll say who made it and the year. And not that even other... to the scabbard? The scabbard? No. Like, there's there's no... no serial numbers. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, so at least you don't got to worry about a matching bayonet. True, but it's would be nice to know it was matching. Another but... interesting is, thing is Remington in 1918 produced bayonets that say 1918 because they assumed they wanted them to put the year of date on the bayonet, but they did not, and they were supposed to put 1917 on them. So <laughs> you will find 1918 dated bayonets, but they're very rare. That's cool. Yes. I shouldn't say they're very rare. They're rare. Again, that
0: might and, be sold as Bayonet one day in an auction.
1: That's, and I see a lot of the ones that have like the X stamp on them with an Eagle and like usually 19, seems like a lot of 1920s dates. Was that when they made them or just like an inspection stamp? On it?
2: Oh, yeah. Those are Eagle inspectors, inspector marks, like the 29 or 17. Was
1: so that the when they were made or were they refurbing them? Or is That just was number? just
2: inspector marks. The Eagle 29 does not mean the date.
1: Those just As, the inspector mark. No There's way to tell when it was made, except for the no,
2: Yeah, the only ones you can tell are the ones without the cleaning hole. That has to be a September 1917 production. Or the 1918 dated ones are obviously super early 1918. Gotcha.
0: That sucks. They made it hard.
2: Yeah, I don't know why they wouldn't just change the date to like 1918 on the bayonet. Because they did that with the 1905 bayonets, the Springfield bayonets.
1: That's true, yeah.
2: So it's really weird why they did
0: that. I don't know if we talked about what slings they came out originally. Was it the same, very
2: similar um, to the 1903 slings?
0: Yeah, it is the same
2: sling. It's the M1907 sling.
1: I saw also they sometimes came with, like, the the Her canvas, slings? The yes. Per, those, yeah,
2: those are mainly used in the States. They're very rarely seen used overseas. More of a substitute standard type sling.
1: Gotcha. Mine actually came with one on it. It looks like yeah. a really old one, cool. so I don't. For some Probably. reason, they
2: seem to be common on the 1917s and not the 1903s.
1: Maybe it was a competition thing or something. Or they just kept all the official slings for the 1903s. And...
2: Well, what you see overseas in pictures is the leather slings. You don't really ever see a canvas sling. Mm-hmm. So it's very rare to see a canvas yeah, I don't sling see it in else. No, you don't. Yeah,
0: I see the same 1903 looking sling most of the yeah. time. And as far as ammo, you know, with .30-06. People worry about what you're shooting out of your grands and your 1903s and all that. This is a stronger action though. We're not worrying about surplus in here, are we?
2: Um, like with surplus, I probably wouldn't shoot it out of a super nice bore or a very nice rifle, just in case it might start corroding the rifle. But for the most part, you should be fine. Oh yeah, yeah this... it, it'll shoot anything.
1: Yeah, I mostly sh- shoot my own reloads, or if I, I'm out,
2: I can just. I wouldn't. I mean, even if you there. had a primer pop or whatever, I wouldn't be super worried about it just due to the gas mitigation on the rifle. Because yes. look down the rifle, and if the primer popped, the front sight's in the way from all the gas coming into your face.
1: Oh, that's right. It's like a little wall right there. <laughs> so it's actually a
2: very safe rifle design. Good. Which is a big deal in World War One when ammo production is very shoddy.
1: Yeah, they got a little gas hole on the side, too. Yeah, that's that's
2: back from that two seven six Enfield stuff. Yeah, I think it is downsized a little bit from that, but it's still you know a very stout action.
1: Yeah, I heard some of these did did. I don't know if they blew up like the 1903s reported. Yes, did.
2: there were a couple that did cool. blow up. I think due to bad ammo. Yes, yeah,
1: so it wasn't even just a 1903 problem. It no, I mean the 1903
2: seen. thing's basically a myth. Yeah, sure, I'm some rifles did blow up, but it was almost always due to bad ammo. Yeah,
1: they made some really spicy loads back then.
0: Well, that brings us into what we wanted to talk about next, shooting it, the recoil, the feel, the sight, you know, all that, it absorbs the .30-06 better than the 1903, in my opinion.
1: Oh, oh yeah.
2: way better. The first time I pulled the trigger on one, I was surprised how little recoil there was.
1: Yeah, they're, I mean, since they're so beefy, and the barrel's well, thick on the
2: Yeah, that's one thing I do oh, like yeah. about it is how thick the barrel is. It makes it very accurate. It takes a while to heat up. It's
1: got a nice pistol grip stock versus a straight stock on the 1903.
2: I also love the triggers on these. Um, they got like a serrated trigger on them.
1: Right. They're good and They're good triggers, too, especially for... Yeah, they're school,
2: not like. bad. They're not bad at all, trigger-wise. They're usually two, pretty crisp.
1: Two-stage, about three pounds or so.
2: Yeah, I've noticed on the non-refurbs, they're usually a little bit nicer. I took it last to the range with the K98 and, and the
0: 1903, and I liked it the best. And it was, wasn't was much of a contest. I, I, I kept picking up the 1917. I was like, I like the it absorbed the recoil. The 8mm is a little, little much. I feel like I'm smashing steel every time I shoot that thing.
1: Yeah, a little punchy.
2: Yeah, I mean, you could shoot the 1917 all day, and you'd probably not even have a sore shoulder.
0: Yeah, I, I wasn't sure what it was, if it was the beefiness, if it was, like you said, the barrel.
2: but It's I, just I, a heavy gun in general. I, I mean, the stock's chunky, the barrel's chunky, the receiver's chunky. I think that's it. It's just heavy. But that's the biggest complaint of all the soldiers, the ones that have to carry which, it around. Which I find interesting because you would think these guys that are, like, 5'7", 5'8", pounds getting knocked by a .30-06 out of a Springfield would hurt. They're probably not even shooting half the time, though. They're probably, it's probably just Yeah, they ca- probably didn't carrying. even get ammo. <laughs> yeah,
1: just digging into their shoulder. Right. Yeah.
2: Walking I mean, miles. If you look at a picture, I mean, they're just loaded with gear.
1: Right. I guess that's when the pound or so difference really matters.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's... Personally, not that big of a deal to me because I'm a big guy, but probably five inches taller than the average World War One soldier.
1: Yeah, it yeah. probably fits you a little better.
0: All right, so let's recap a little bit here. The most common one around is the Eddie Stone. gone through a couple of rebuilds, one or two rebuilds, probably a decent barrel because if the barrel was bad, they rebarreled them, right?
2: Yeah, as long as somebody didn't shoot surplus through it in like the 50s <laughs> and then put it away. Right, yep. there are a lot of hunting versions, but you could still find full military, right? Yeah, I would say cut downs are probably more common than full length rifles.
1: Yeah, there's a ton of sports out there; they're really popular. And
0: my advice would be to still wait for one for under a thousand somewhere.
2: I Maybe, would agree, right? Especially for a refurb, I wouldn't probably pay a thousand bucks for a refurb personally. Um, and then when you get into
0: them, then when you want your early Winchesters and your early blue, then you could spend over a thousand.
2: Oh, yeah, if you get a nice blued gun, I mean, that'll probably be over 2000 for an original blued gun. Um, I've been on a couple, and they went out of my price range. Some of them go to three. Jeez. If you get, like, a really nice Remington, they'll go to almost 3000 3, Wow. Yeah, I lost one. I was not happy about that. <laughs> but I got this one, so I'm happy. Remington has the best quality, I think, by far. Um, then Eddie Stone, then Winchester.
1: Yeah, people seem to kind of poo-poo the Eddie Stones, but that's probably just because they made the most.
2: Well, I mean, if you were a doughboy, you're probably going to get issued an Eddie Stone 1917. It was crazy how they figured out it was like
0: 75% of the soldiers.
2: Yeah, so what they did was they figured out, because everything's written down how many guns were shipped overseas and how many were in storage, how many were issued. So I think there was something like 3 million AEF soldiers when they did the thing to figure out two-thirds. And a million rifles were issued, a million rifles were in storage, and then a million rifles were 1903s. I think I need a Remington now. They're very nice. I mean, yeah. my my the bolt doesn't even wobble on mine. Like, you pull the bolt all the way out, it's tight.
1: Yeah, mine's pretty, mine's pretty slick as well. Would recommend.
2: Yeah, they're great guns. I love shooting them. If I'm going to shoot a gun, I almost always bring a 1917.
1: I just can't get over how good the sights are.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, you can hit steel all day with them.
1: I do find it funny that the battle site is 400 yards. And you know you what? Flip it up and it's 200. So you got it, You go down. Yeah. I it's think, the opposite.
2: Yes. But it's still not horrible. Just to flip the site up.
1: Makes you look pretty cool at the range. Look like you know what you're doing.
2: Yeah. And I think you can go to 100 on these too.
1: Can you? Yes. Oh, there's so like a notch. If you flip it up. Yeah. Well, that's right. It doesn't click in, but you can push it down below the 200. All right.
2: I think we covered everything here. Oh, I forgot one thing they uh, added on the cocking piece later in production. They added a slot. When you disassemble it, you can put the cocking piece onto the cocking shroud. So it holds it so you can unscrew it.
0: Oh, because the,
2: that is originally true, the, it didn't bolt, have the bolt
0: is a pain. It is a pain to take apart. Forgot about that.
2: So yeah, later on, they cut out a little part there, but that's really the only big change that they ever did.
1: These are the same rifles all the way through. Unlike K98s or Type 99s. Yeah, right.
2: I mean, they just wanted to keep reducing what they had and knew it worked. There is one more slight modification, not to ramble on, but each rear sight is a little bit different contour, each maker.
0: Like the outside? the
2: Well, the rear sight protector. Each one's a little bit different, okay. like each maker. They're just a little bit different contour. See, that we need that on a website or a book or something. It is in the CS Ferris book. That is the book That's... I would recommend. It covers almost everything. So I'm getting that book. The green one, right? Yes, the green one by C.S. Ferris. Um, Has a lot of good info, serial numbers, part changes, which are not very many, accessories, pretty much everything. How to tell different parts just by how they're made, too. Because, you know, each manufacturer had a little bit different cut. Like, if you look at a front band on a Winchester, they have a steeper cut than a Remington or Eddie Stone.
0: Darn it, Winchester.
2: Yeah, it's usually Winchester that has (laughs) the weird cut, too. Always messing (laughs) with
0: Oh, wait, there was one more rare variant we were going to talk about.
2: Right, so it's Winchester's under 50,000 roughly. I don't think there's like an exact number, but they would have a star right on the left side of the receiver. And it just means. Do not send this <laughs> to France because it does not work with other rifles.
1: Yeah, it started too early.
2: Because if you have Private John put an Eddie Stone bolt in your Winchester, it might not work. Well, the armors must have been really upset. Well, yeah, that's why they, they sent them right away. And there was actually a mandate not to send Winchester rifles until January 1918.
0: Now I want one of these. <laughs> you
2: know, a W marked I mean, rare. Yeah, I mean, they drive a premium, that's for sure. Winchester rifles in general drive a premium. And then on top of that, if they're blued and a four-digit serial that has just a W, those go for a lot of money.
1: Yeah, everyone likes the Winchester, Same with Koreans.
2: I don't understand. Yeah. It. They're not even made as well. Well,
1: I think it's all Wild
2: West stuff. Yeah, Boomers. (laughs) Oh, the, the original Boomers. They're a good company, though. Don't get me wrong. I'm not hating on them.
0: Well, their tube magazine was the one that started everything with the tube magazines.
2: I just think they have, they do have the nicest finish. I'll give them that. Out of all the 1917 rifles, the early Winchesters have a very nice finish.
0: That's what they were good at, their
2: finish. Yes. Not with part interchange.
0: Alright, so I think we've summed up everything with this nineteen seventeen. And I'm saying this is my number one World War One bolt action. I don't know how oh. you guys
2: stand. Uh, oh, yeah.
1: One or two for me.
2: Uh oh. I mean you could say the SMLE, but it's rimmed.
1: Yeah, no, not the SMLE. I really like the Japanese type thirty eight carbine. <sighs> Western front yes. rifles. We can go, <laughs> you know, yeah.
2: That's a good that is a good gun. It's just a little long.
1: So I was thinking the carbine. He likes the short one.
2: Oh yeah, the type thirty eight carbines are nice. It'll be anything.
1: Such an easy shooter.
2: Dust cover and everything.
1: Perfect trench rifle that never saw a trench.
2: Yep. Yeah,
0: well see, you're thinking you're in the trench. I'm thinking more I'm the guy in the back and I'm just laying down shooting from a nice safe spot and I'll take <laughs> my nineteen seventeen over my little tiny carbine. Until Those you get blown up by artillery. Together. True. I'm that guy. All right. Zeb, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on talking to us. Yeah, thank
2: you guys. Sorry for rambling too much, but mm-hmm. oh no, you had a ton of
1: good information. Yeah, we always. Yeah, love I wouldn't guns. say I'm the
2: most knowledgeable person ever, but I'm a collector. All right, thanks for joining us. Yep, thank you. All right, that was fun. Zeb was great, huh?
1: Yeah, he had a lot of good info. There's quite a bit out there on these guns.
0: Yeah, I hope he gets uh, his collection filled. He needs to get himself a Winchester. Um, we covered a lot with him, but you know. We didn't cover a couple of things, and one of them was the availability of spare parts and accessories. And basically, it's pretty easy to get U.S. parts for this, right? You know, screws, replacement parts.
1: Yeah, any any U.S. surf. It's usually there's a good, good stock of parts, spare parts and gunsmiths that know how to work on these in the U.S. So you can find anything from brand-new made barrels, reproductive stocks, you can find... Any and all of the little small parts. That right, all, the, all the
0: bands, all
1: the... Yeah, screws, sights, all that stuff. You can find those pretty handedly on normal places like Numeric or Liberty Tree or somewhere like eBay. There's a few good places to get parts. Uh, one thing to watch out for if you're buying some of... The, there's a few specific parts that are different between the 1917 and the P14. So if you're looking for things like a... Rear sight, that's going to be different just because of the different trajectories of the bullets or stocks are a big one. P-14 stocks are actually pretty cheap, but they don't fit on 1917s because of different geometry for the magazine and barrel. So you'd have to do a lot of woodworking to get that fit on there. And they're marked and then,
0: wrong often, so be careful.
1: Yeah, they're, you have to really kind of look at the differences between them, which we'll get to in a second. And then obviously things like the magazine and follower are going to be different, as well as the bolt, because different caliber, so can't share those. And then I think the rest of the parts should be the same. Things like the barrel bands are the same. The front sight posts will be different, but, like, the front sight protector wings should be the same. Uh, Cocking pieces and things like that, same trigger, same. Most of the small parts are the same.
0: So there's even, like, more parts availability, being that you can get P14 and... 1917 parts.
1: Exactly. So, yeah, if you find one of these that's sporerized but doesn't have any metal missing, so no sights chopped off, no barrel chopped off, it might be something to consider picking up and see if you can build yourself a cheaper rifle than finding one elsewhere. And it's fun. Indeed. And you're doing the Lord's work.
0: And as far as I see, even the bayonets and slings you could find, but they go for a premium now, but you could find them.
1: Yeah, they're they're definitely out there. You will pay a good... decent amount for a bayonet or an original sling you can get reproductions fairly easily
0: now that's one of the parts i will get the repro on is the sling because i just want to make sure it doesn't drop onto the floor you know so
1: yeah i've had that happen before don't like never like breaking a sling (laughs) so all right
0: so you know what now it's time for america's second favorite wheel the wheel of milsir right All right. The Wheel of Millsurp has a number of Millsurp-related prompts and questions that I put on there, like, would you rather this or that, buy or pass, make this trade, finish this sentence, a couple other things here. So let's get to it. I'm spinning. Here we go. And it landed on this or that. That might have been what we had last
1: time. Uh, I think so, but I'll do it anyway. All
0: right. There's one thing on the wheel, this or that. All right, so you have to make a decision to take either the first or the second firearm. You get offered these two, let's just say for free, for the sake of argument. Here we go.
1: Free, I'll take them both.
0: All right, number one is the this. The great-grandson of a Remington employee contacts you, offers you an early, all-original 1917 that clearly saw no service, but has a serial number 15,000 even, and he has a letter from his great-grandfather who said it was gifted to him at Remington he has some photos of the ceremony of him getting it, but nothing else. No other writing official from anything.
1: All right. All right. That's a gem right there.
0: All right. So unissued, great condition, cool serial. Got your letter and your pics. The that, the great grandson of a World War I soldier, brings you a sporterized and beat up 1917 cut stock in hunting configuration so it's drilled and tapped with some random scope on top. It's rusted up a bit, pitted a bit, cracks here and there, but he has a letter from his great grandfather mentioning he was allowed to keep the gun. Just a letter from him and some time period photos of him with the gun that you, you could see clearly. It is the gun, so it is a great a World War One soldier. Poor condition, random serial number, but you know it was used. Not officially a letter, but enough to you'll think you know it was used. Well, Kelly, this or that.
1: Unfortunately, this is the easy choice for me, as the sporterization really kills it for me. I mean, the provenance—I mean, it's kind of cool. It's not official, official military use. It seems like you can't one hundred percent guarantee it. But one straight from the Remington factory. I will say this:
0: the letter was from nineteen, like eighteen, saying I get to keep my rifle, and he wrote the serial number in the letter. So it's it's in a weird official way. You believe it, but you know it's not official that you can, you know. Okay, it's
1: not from the army.
0: Right, it's not an army, but you believe it's definitely used by him, so even though it is cut. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I'd still probably have to go with the factory fresh Remington with the, the guy getting it from the Remington factory. That just sounds like a really cool story, and having a gorgeous original one like that would be what seals the deal for me.
0: All right, well, I have a surprise for you. To have the great grandson of a remington. No. Uh. Well, I was debating it as well, and I and and I agree that the sporterizing and cutting it makes you cry when you see that. Oh
1: yeah, it hurts. That's I one like- thing to look out for when you're buying them. Sometimes there's some sneaky smorter- sporterizations sportorizations or restored ones out there. Let's say I it's
0: not sporterized. It's in shit shape, though. It's not drilled and tapped. It's just in shit shape, rusted, pitted, cracks, and everything mm. else the same. Does it change anything?
1: Possibly. If it's original configuration but has, like, for the most part, proof that it was used, that, that could change a deal for me.
0: You know, some people wanted to have, like, knowing that it wasn't used in war is a big deal to a lot of folks. I guess that's the point of this question because you know that's, that gun wasn't used.
1: Yeah, some people really pay a premium for, like, military acceptance marks and things like that. So, in this case, I might have to lean that way.
0: All right. Congratulations. I don't know any of these people, so we're not
1: getting these guns. That's okay. I expect it on my doorstep next week.
0: (laughs) All right. I think that covers all things 1917 in this episode. Um, Let's give a little recap of some things we learned. Let's see here. We early on learned about the gun, where it came from, what factories, why we were using a British gun, who made them, how many, who made the best, the worst, all the stock cartouches.
1: Different finishes they had coming out of the factory versus the either post-World War One or post-World War Two refurbishment processes, so there's two of those to keep track of.
0: And I do like that all of those cartouches you see are post-war, those initials, a lot of those are World War II
1: Yep, R.I.P., O.G.E.K., things like that. See one of those or like in the square box, you know it's at least seen some sort of refurb.
0: Uh, we did some trivia, learned that the uh, doughboys use pennies as mag depressors, uh, that the French gave us dangerous grenade launchers. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Good old French.
0: Uh, Eddie Stone had a whopping 15,000 employees. It's crazy. The battle site was 400.
1: Yep, and there's a little tidbit about you can go to actually go below the 200 mark. There's not a 100 mark, but you can go below it. And that's around 100 yards if you're doing some target shooting.
0: I got to try that next time. We talked some bayonets and slings. We learned the 30 out 6 is pretty easy to find and reload. That was oh, good. Yeah. Especially in the U.S. We also we enjoyed shooting it. That was great.
1: Yep, definitely one of the best mill surf shooting rifles out there.
0: All right, so let's do a little bit of the recap of our uh, prices here our most common found is going to be some sort of eddy stone rebuild and if you just want one for your collection this is probably the way to go right
1: yeah eddy stone of course it's the most common and most 1917s saw a couple refurb processes so they're probably going to be parkerized completely reworked with all a mix of parts so an eddystone stone mix master that's going to be the most common one you see if you just want one to throw in your collection and say you have it and take to the range every now and then. That's going to be your go-to, save you a few bucks. And, and those, geez, are reaching 800 these days, r- roughly around there. Right, you'll see a 1,000 all day long, but you can get
0: them in the 800 in, in certain auctions and, you know, you get a little luck.
1: Yeah, go to a little ranky deacon gun store, maybe we'll have one. But a lot of these places
0: now, I'm seeing twelve, thirteen hundred 1,300 for full World War II rebuilds, so I don't know.
1: Yeah, they've really increased in price in the last few years. I mean, I got lucky and snagged mine for six fifty, and it's not even refurbed.
0: Okay, so that's the common prices. So if you wait a little bit, you could probably get it a, a little earlier, Remington or Winchester. And now we're talking twelve, thirteen, fourteen hundred easy.
1: Yeah, if you're looking for something wartime, definitely. So, and if you're lucky, you'll find one that's still in the bluing. That's that's a real gem to look out for because the bluing's beautiful, and you know it hasn't seen too hard of a reefer process if anything
0: and there's so many different colors when you look at them because they went through they changed twice over the span
1: yeah you got blueing, you got dark parkerize you got the gray green parkerizing yeah and the blueings are are a little bit different too just because of different companies
0: and then so like we, we did discuss a little of the grail ones which you'll know when you see them because the prices on those are ridiculous
1: yeah the foreign use ones are pretty high up there the I mean the Canadian British returns aren't too too crazy and they'll have that red paint stripe on them. But they still still command a little bit of a premium. And yeah, for the holy grail one like Zeb was talking about, a real really nice early all original rifle from any of the manufacturers is gonna kinda run you well over two grand. Speaking of harder to find rifles, there's another cool variant of the not really variant, but user is the is the Danish, but not in their normal use, and they use it in Greenland. It's on the sled dog patrols up there in the north, and they actually still use these 100-year-old, 100-some-year-old rifles up there in Greenland to defend themselves against polar bears because they trust the 30-06 round, and the action doesn't freeze up. Now, so these rifles come are actually still in use.
0: I mean, if that's not saying how good the gun is, come on.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's got to be one of the longest-serving rifles now.
0: Polar bear ranked and serving for
1: how many years is that now? What, 100 a <laughs> 105, 106? Yeah, there you go. Another one that you'll probably never see, but will be really cool to have and very expensive if you ever found one, was the ones that went to China. The U.S. donated a bunch to China for World War II. And them being a little bit of smaller stature guys, they were having trouble with the length and weight of it. So they actually chopped them down. So they look exactly the same as regular 1917s, but they're just like four inches shorter they moved the barrel bands back they moved the front sight band back so it looks like a 1917 it's just a little 1917 carbine which would be super cool to have
0: oh and how many people sold it as thinking it was just cut down junk
1: or how many fakes are out there too Is nothing to <laughs> <Sure>. think about <laughs> i think they have a couple of marks i well i hope
0: they do the chinese like to mark their rifles so
1: oh yeah and i'm, I'm sure they're beat to hell because they used them for decades
0: Wait, so basically if it's a foreign-used 1917, buy it. Yep, pretty much. That's what I'd say. <laughs> All, right. All right. So I think that's it. I can't recommend this one more because I even said it's my top World War One rifle now.
1: Yep, number two for me.
0: Well, until I start researching the next one from World War One, and then that's going to become my
1: next favorite. Yeah, yep, there you go. Oh, well, I guess one thing to mention is... When you're out there trying to buy one, make sure you don't accidentally buy a P-14, because they look almost exactly the same. So, And they're listed wrong a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, that, that can be one little trick to get you a cheaper one, is to find one that somebody's like, oh, British rifle, and they don't know what it is. It, they don't know if it's a P-14 or a 1917. So, so things. You, well, yeah, what look, do you look for? Um, the most obvious thing will be the Little unit identification disc in the stock or a hole where it was plugged with a chunk of wood. Those are P14s, and the P14 stock does not fit on a 1917 without modification, so if it has that, it's most likely a P14. Other tells will be the receiver bridge will obviously look a little different and won't say US model of 1917. It'll just say Eddystone or ERA or Remington or R on there. And then there will also be a serial number on the bolt, which the U.S. rifles do not have, unless they were in Canada or England or Danish or whatever, but those aren't that common.
0: Oh, that's that's a good one.
1: Yep. And then these aren't common, but sometimes on the left side, they'll still have the volley sights, which the U.S. rifles never had because they got rid of that silly feature. But on the P-14s, they often still have the little discs where they were mounted on the left side of the stock. So That's another tell for a P14.
0: Yeah, that's that's what mine has. Uh, they went through the whole Weeden depot.
1: Yeah, and often the stocks will have repairs where they have like the wood staples that you see in the or the little saw cuts on the cracks where, like they did on the SMLEs. Oh yeah, they often have like an ugly black finish instead of like the nice original bluing or parkerizing that the I guess bluing is what the P14s would have had. They have like an ugly kind of black finish, like the SMLE sometimes they have. Be sure to get up close and personal, or if you're on an auction or something, take a look at each picture in detail.
0: Yeah, that's good. Look at if you're looking for a 1917, take a look at the P14s also in case someone mislabels it.
1: Yep, P14s usually go a little bit cheaper than a 1917, so hot tip for you. No reason not to get both. Uh, I agree. 303 is also pretty pleasant to shoot, and especially out of a P14.
0: And these are trending up, so. Don't hesitate if you're thinking about getting one and you made it this far into the podcast, then you really should go buy one because we're not blowing smoke up your ass. It's good.
1: Yeah, Yeah, get one of these yesterday. Don't bother with any of the K98 or any of that silly German stuff. Just get in 1970. Yeah. All right.
0: All right. That's it for us, I think, Kelly. All
1: right. Yep. Thank you all for joining the Millsirp HQ lengthy podcast and listening to our rambling. Hmm. We're getting shorter, though. You'll see. We're getting there. This is number two, so we're practicing.
0: Reach out, contact if you have something to say, want us to talk about something, whatever.
1: Hit us up on Discord or Reddit. We now have a Millsurp Trivia subreddit, so check that out as well.
0: All right. Later. See ya.